0: Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and
1: inspired.
2: This is World Today.
1: Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Jiang. In recent weeks, a glimmer of hope has emerged as Chinese and American officials engage in a flurry of meetings aiming to mend the cracks in their strength relations. Chinese Vice Foreign Minister Ma Zhao Xu met with U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs Daniel Crittenbrink and White House National Security Council Senior Director for China Sarah Barron, with both sides describing the talks as candid and productive. Additionally, Chinese senior diplomat Wang Yi and U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan held extensive discussions in Vienna, while Chinese Commerce Minister Wang Wentao spoke with his American counterpart Gina Raimondo in Washington to navigate the complexities of their economic ties. However, not all encounters were successful. Chinese Defense Minister Li Shangfu declined a meeting with the U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin at a Shangri La dialogue in Singapore, as Washington refused to lift its sanctions on the general. Furthermore, tensions escalated when a U.S. destroyer sailed through the Taiwan Straits, marking the second dangerous encounter between the Chinese and U.S. militaries within a matter of days. Key questions arise. Will there be a thaw in China-US relations as predicted by US President Joe Biden at the G7 summit, or is the risk of military mishaps increasing? What are the main obstacles hindering effective communication and trust building between the two countries? Moreover, with prominent business leaders such as Elon Musk and Team Cook receiving high-profile treatment in China, can trade relations continue to serve as the bedrock of bilateral ties? Introducing our panel, Professor Chu Bo from China Foreign Affairs University, Aina Tungen, Senior Fellow at Taihe Institute, and Harvey Zoden, former Vice President of ABC TV Network and Senior Fellow of the Center for China and Globalization. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. And Professor Chu, I'd like to start with you how would you interpret the series of meetings between Chinese and American officials in recent weeks? And are these meetings indicating a potential reduction in tensions between the two countries?
3: Uh, Yeah, first of all, I think uh, these meetings, uh, a series of meetings definitely is constructive. um, And we know uh, in the, um, especially uh, uh, even after last uh, November, when the President Xi Jinping met with the uh, President Joe Biden, uh, but the United States still, uh, like, allowed uh, the uh, Taiwan leader Tsai when wen visited uh, the United States, and also there are other uh, events really deteriorated the bilateral relations and side the obstacles. So for China, uh, from our side, the dialogue is now just the dialogue per se and we should reach uh, some consensus and, uh, and, uh, and should be uh, uh, the uh, action-oriented approach. So I think recently the United States is changing its policy and is going uh, like to uh, welcome uh, the dialogue with uh, Chinese counterparts. So I think uh, the current series of meetings, definitely that is a good sign. Uh, that also indicate a potential uh, reduction in tensions between the uh, two countries, and uh, and there is a new stage that the U.S. Uh, uh, Secretary of the State uh, is uh, is planning to visit China, and I think these meetings uh, the, uh, the, the 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 meetings will definitely well uh, make uh, the uh, maybe um, make the two countries. Uh, re- to reduce the tension between two countries.
1: Okay, know, would you agree and how would you describe the current state of China U.S. relations taking into account uh, those mixed signals in recent weeks and months?
2: Well, I, I think everybody shares this idea that uh, hopefully it's bottomed out and the only way um, only direction to go is upwards. Um, I do I, I have a kind of cynical um, idea about this. I know that the when the U.S. Um wants to have uh, a parlay, wants to have a meeting, they tend to try to hijack the agenda by inserting kind of drama. Uh, we've seen that a number of times, uh, adding new sanctions or sailing ships to the Taiwan Straits just prior to a meeting. So given uh, what was happening in the Taiwan Straits and uh, a number of uh, issues um, that the Biden administration has been pushing, uh, I do think that in combination with these mid-level meetings, that there is some seriousness to this. Um, and I think a lot of it's being pushed by American business interest. The U.S. is looking at a really, really bad situation, uh, 1.1% growth, uh, GDP growth this year. That's down from 1.7 at the beginning of the year. And uh, if there are more rate hikes, uh, that number could be significantly reduced um, with the U.S. going into a serious recession. So at this point, I think uh, the business interests have gone to Washington and they've also come to China and they've made it very clear. Look, you know, it's uh, everyone has to eat and um, we have to pull ourselves out of this. So uh, antagonizing China is dangerous because it takes away a major market for the U.S. already. Um, tens of billions of dollars have been lost from everyone from Micron to um, uh, all the chip makers, because they're not allowed to sell to China anymore, and that's a significant part of their revenue. And that'll have rebound effects in terms of their competitiveness uh, going forward. So uh, right now, uh, let's hope for the best.
1: Okay. So, so Harvey, would you agree that economic factors, factors are what's behind Washington's current pursuit of engagement with Beijing? Uh,
0: in part, but not, uh, not in total. Because I believe that we were very close uh, to the edge, to the precipice. And I think that there was a desire to take at least a half a step back from there to try to uh, get the relationship, if not, uh, not on a friendly basis necessarily, but on a business-like basis. So I think it was greater than just economic concerns uh, pushing this. I really think that there was a feeling that things were getting out of control and that uh, we could end up with some kind of a nuclear uh, war or something short of it if we kept going in the same direction. And I'm very happy that there are these signs, although I'm not completely uh, optimistic. Because I think the U.S. side continues uh, to believe that they're the best; they were chosen by God under American exceptionalism, and uh, that uh, they don't want to become number two, or they don't want to—they don't want to share the platform uh, with China and don't want to compete with China. So they're doing everything to uh, economically uh, enclose China, wall them off, and so on. So. In the long run, I'm not optimistic, but this week I'm optimistic because there's a little bit of movement.
1: Okay, so Professor Chu, in your opinion, what factors led Joe Biden to predict that China-U.S. relations would begin to thaw very shortly, as he stated during the G7 G7 summit last month?
3: Uh, yes, and I think definitely, uh, and he definitely know uh, where uh, is the opposite goes between two countries. And uh, and especially in this March, because of the uh, balloon uh, problem, and then that is how the United States side, especially uh, this day Secretary uh, Sullivan announced that he will postpone his visit to China. and actually that is how the United States side the obstacles to the bilateral uh, communication. So so that is why I think uh, Joe Biden, uh, aside that, right? Because you know where is the obstacle. If the United States just change uh, uh, their policy and change their behavior, and definitely they try to uh, move uh, uh, to, comp- uh, to to talk with China and agree uh, pa- uh, and also agree with uh, the uh, previous uh, panelists and talking about the economic factor. Uh, and I think uh, the Chinese schools uh, and uh, uh, the Chinese financial support to the United States uh, is still the uh, kind of the foundation for U.S. competitiveness in the uh, current situation and in the near future. So that is why uh, the president Trump, uh, he already changed his intention. And uh, then uh, the United States is moving to uh, 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 talk with China seriously.
1: Yes, but but actually, despite the recent flurry of contacts between Chinese and American officials, it appears that communication in the security field is still stagnant. So, Ina, um, as you said earlier, uh, we know a U.S. Navy destroyer sailed through the Taiwan Straits last Saturday, and it was forced to alter course by a Chinese warship, and that marked the second dangerous encounter between Chinese and U.S. military within days. And the previous incident took place in the airspace over the South China Sea. And the U.S. has accused China of increasing aggressiveness. But actually, from the Chinese perspective, these are provocative moves by the U.S., especially since they occurred in the Taiwan Straits and the South China Sea, rather than off the shores of California. So how would you interpret these recent incidents?
2: Well, it's, it's not, you know, we, we sometimes talk about the world in terms of China and the US, and I, I think that's, that's wrong. Um, right now, the world is watching. Uh, you saw all the interest in the, uh, in the almost 20 countries that are want to join the BRICS. Um, also, RCEP is now in effect. Uh, You know, what you have here is the the U.S., um, over 250 years of its existence, it's used its Navy 150 times. Gunboat diplomacy is not something new. It is just there. So, you know, the U.S. says, oh, you're being aggressive. Well, how are they being aggressive? You're sailing U.S. warships up and down the Taiwan Straits. You're inviting trouble. You're wanting it. If China... Was sailing ships between Boston and Nantucket. I guarantee you, the U.S. would be on war footing, and we saw that before in terms of what happened with Cuba and the, uh, you know everything that <laughs> the Cuban Missile Crisis was the closest we came to a nuclear uh, Armageddon. So you know it—it's this tactic that the U.S. likes to use, and it's used often, uh, where you accuse others of doing exactly what you're doing or you're about to do. And um, this goes with trade, Uh, you know, the U.S. says, oh, you know, China's being uh, aggressive. How is China being aggressive? It was unilateral tariffs that was imposed by the U.S., not only on China, but on the entire world, friend, foe, and, you know, (laughs) neighbor alike. Um, It's, you know, and the U.S. then says, oh, China's being uh, coercive. Well, there's no country in the world that is more coercive than the United States. And then the United States says, well, you know, we're in favor of the international order and the rule of law. China isn't. Well, it's not true. It's the U.S. who's broken multiple treaties, uh, whether it's the uh, Iranian uh, nuclear deal or the uh, Kyoto Climate Accord, the Paris Climate Accord. They don't recognize the ICC, the International Criminal Court. Um, You know, a few years ago, um, (laughs) the the security advisor to uh, Donald Trump was saying that he was going to arrest the ICC if they even talked about uh, going after American troops for war crimes. So, you know, and it's also the U.S. has hobbled or prevented uh, the WTO, World Trade Organization, from operating because it refuses to allow judges to be appointed unless they're American judges. This speaks to a hegemon, uh, somebody's doing, but what do you hear from the U.S. consistently? Oh, everybody else is doing these things not us. We're the good guys. It's a lot of nonsense.
1: Okay. So Harvey, um, I think the question here is, on the one hand, we hear from uh, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, uh, who is calling for communication between defense and military leaders of of China and, and the U.S. And on the other hand, he's indicating that the U.S. would keep operating military ships and planes near China. So is the U.S. calling for communication and exchanges while harming China's interests and concerns? And what's the underlying strategy behind the U.S. approach?
0: Well, I think Einar um, summed it up quite, uh, quite well. And if I could say uh, in a few words uh, that rules for thee, but not for me. And so this is a situation which the U.S. is always preaching uh, to others, but not uh, following what they tell others to do. But, you know, there's a fundamental difference here on international law. China and the U.S. Uh, have differing interpretations over the international law in the region. So China believes that the Taiwan Strait, it's their territory or waters as it runs between its Taiwan province and the mainland and that any foreign military activity or presence does violate its sovereignty. But the U.S. and allies treat the strait as an international waterway that gives them transit overflight rights. There's no current agreement about how to further adjudicate this really longstanding and difficult issue. So I personally believe that Chinese and U.S. top officials uh, should have met in Singapore for more than a brief hello. But on the other hand, I also believe that Blinken should have taken his scheduled trip to China uh, after the balloon incident because it was important to do so and to do it then. So as Austin claims that his calls to China's uh, top military brass also went unanswered at the time of extreme tension then, um, I think uh, there should have been a substantive meeting in, in Singapore, but sadly there wasn't. Because we need to talk about these issues when they're occurring so we can avoid, as the Einar said, the nuclear Armageddon. And we're not there yet. We used to be there, but we're not there now. We're far from it.
1: Okay. So, uh, Professor Chu, ha- how do you look at this? I mean, uh, maintaining a military presence near China's border while simultaneously calling for communication that seemed more like a threat than a sincere invitation for dialogue, right? So I'm wondering how this kind of strategy has influenced China's willingness to engage in, in discussions with the U.S.
3: Yes, uh, sure. Uh, first of all, uh, let me add some point uh, to the uh, navigation theme. So I think on one side, the United States claimed uh, that so-called free uh, navigation—that is kind of uh, how the United States efforts to protect uh, the uh, UN uh, UN Convention on the uh, the Law of the Sea, right? But actually, it, it is very uh, ironic that the United States is not part of that UN Convention. Uh, so this is how the United States claim and uh, the uh, their uh, ship navigation just. Uh, to uh, uh, to preserve the uh, international law or safeguard the international uh, the law of the sea, but actually the real intention of the United States uh, uh, the the warship there, and actually is about deterrence, is about to deter China and to exercise the uh, United States military uh, muscle, right? So I think this is very dangerous behavior, and that is very dangerous. Um, make. Make the crisis—that is the most uh, possible uh, a spotlight of crisis—occur between China and the, uh, and the United States, and also become uh, kind of uh, a direct military conflicts between China and the United States. So this is the first, and second, in terms of you mentioned, and I think China uh, from the Chinese perspective, it is uh, obvious, uh, very clear, the dialogue, the communication. Uh, should build on. Um, you you have to keep your words, right? Uh, you, you have to keep your words. You already promised. So I think recently I write a news, uh, and uh, uh, I think recently when the uh, Chinese senior official Wang Yi met with uh, Sullivan, and uh, uh, the Wang Yi asked the Sullivan to check out about the uh, Chinese three communicates of two countries, especially to check out. Uh, one-China uh, uh, principle. So I think this is very, very important. And if we look at it by now, why the uh, dialogue, why the communication is in uh, 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 a uh, stagnation. And I think because the United States cannot keep their words, and they also uh, has been taking many uh, provocative uh, uh, actions. Yeah.
1: Okay, well, I know... Do you see a security dilemma there, as pointed out by Daniel Russell, who is the former U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs, uh, that between China and the U.S., where the two states both see their own actions reactive and defensive, while the other side's actions are viewed as aggressive and threatening? So is there a potential avenue for Washington and Beijing to break free from this kind of negative cycle?
2: Well, unfortunately, the, the, the only avenue that really works is if the U.S. Um, you know, says, well, I guess it's a multipolar world, and they stop this idea that they can maintain their hegemony using gumbo diplomacy, diversion tactics. You know, let, Let's be crystal clear about what's happening. Uh, the U.S. is not going to invade China. China is not going to invade the U.S. Neither one wants a war, but the U.S. is determined to keep China's economic rise in check. So what they're doing is they're trying to come at the peripheries, whether it's Hong Kong, Taiwan, Tibet, Xinjiang, South China Seas, and stir up trouble. And the, the whole point is to use a mix of economic and military and political pressure uh, to distract China, to make it put more money into arms, uh, to uh, you know make it, uh, Less, uh, less uh, predictable to um, engage with China economically, so that that is the intent. Uh, why why we're seeing uh, Biden uh, suddenly saying, "Oh well, maybe there's some hope out there." Well, he you know he's going from one mediocre uh, situation to the next. Uh, the, there, the debt situation has not been solved It has been kicked down the road two years, but for a politician um, In the US that's a victory they say oh look we kicked it down the road just like everyone else has done before us and in terms of uh, right now in order for him to be reelected or a Democrat to be reelected he needs to you know pump up the economy And the only way you can do that right now for the U.S., which is suffering, as I said earlier, very, very low economic growth uh, consistently over these last years and lower expected because of uh, self-imposed pain through rate hikes, is actually to deal with China, to somehow come to some kind of uh, entente where uh, American businesses can continue operating in in China, Uh, American businesses continue selling in China because they need these markets. Uh, During bad times, you need everything you can. So I I see a lot of this is as usual. It's dictated by, um, you know, domestic politics. Uh, That's where Biden has lived for 50 years. Uh, He just won election to the next. And unfortunately, that doesn't speak well to these larger issues that need to be solved. So when you say, you know, how, where is the avenue? Uh, I don't see one in Washington right now, but I do see one uh, in the American uh, public. If the voters become disenchanted with people who are making promises and not delivering, if they see the economy going in the wrong direction and they see this threat of war, they may well vote uh, to have a new blood. And by that, I'm, I'm hoping that they will reject both uh, Biden and uh, Trump in favor of the next group of leaders who hopefully can come to a much more rational decision about where America is in the world.
1: Okay, so Harvey, what do you think are the main obstacles preventing effective communications between the two countries' militaries?
0: Well, I th- I think we've sunk to such a, a low level now. And, and I, I think actually that uh, Danny Russell uh, is right and Einar is right too, that uh, we're in a situation where it's a lose-lose trap and neither side wants to back down. It makes that side look weak. And so we can't have any positive forward motion. It's not gonna happen anytime soon, and it probably would never happen. But I think the best answer is to try to resume to some degree the institutionalized dialogue, such as the economic and security dialogues we had for much of this century until Trump killed them. Um and we also had very robust military to military consultations. So a decade ago, uh, when General Stilwell, Dave Stilwell, was the defense attaché in Beijing, and he invited me to his residence, I was shocked to see how many PLA people were there. It was a really good sign then that informal contacts were being forged and that uh, they could be activated on a person-to-person basis. I don't see that, uh, or even uh, military-to-military meetings happening anytime soon. So maybe at a bare minimum, what we have to do now is to have some very limited bilateral protocols that can be established to avoid these near misses and open up the hotlines again. Because one thing uh, General Thilwell taught me was that he was never worried about an actual conflict uh, uh, caused, but he was worried by a conflict that arose from an accident. And we've had these near misses in the last couple of weeks, both uh, uh, on the sea and uh, in the air. And we could have these again if things don't settle down. And it just takes one of them and we're off to the races and we're down the road to a nuclear war. So I think we're playing with fire. I hope we can start to put the fire out quickly by talking to each other more, at least on a limited basis, and doing some confidence building and then opening the agenda more and more as time goes on.
2: You know, if I may just interject, Harvey, wouldn't that start with taking Lee off the blacklist? I mean, Mm -hmm. Biden rejected that. Mm -hmm. And that that was, you know, he he sent a very clear message. He was not going to take the Defense Secretary of China off a blacklist. That means that he couldn't even go to the United States. I mean, yes. th- there's got to be a start somewhere, and it was very. Yeah, reasonable I, to remove that.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, I agree, but I, I also think, on the other hand, uh, that there should have been a, a meeting uh, between Lee and uh, the Defense U.S. Defense uh,
1: Secretary
0: because yes, things um, are so
1: bad. I, and, I, I'm. And we need maybe we to, have yeah. to answer that question after this short break. Please stay with us. <laughs> okay. Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying, joined by Professor Chu Bo from China Foreign Affairs University, Ina Chang Senior Fellow at Taihe Institute, and Harvey Zoden, former Vice President of ABC TV Network. So Harvey, why wouldn't the U.S. take generally off that blacklist so that the two countries' militaries can restart dialogue?
0: I think it's the same The same way that we don't uh, the u.s doesn't end the uh, very punitive tariffs against china we're just playing a game here of trying to fence china in of trying to be superior of showing uh our might and of holding china down so that's why his name should be taken off the list Um, but these people the leadership in america doesn't have the foresight to do what President Xi Jinping did uh, about uh, a dozen years ago, and that was to propose a new model of great power relations uh, when he was meeting with President Obama. And uh, maybe that had a, a small start in the Paris Climate Agreement, but then Trump came into office, and uh, again, uh, things have gone downhill. So it's power politics, and we, we were in such a place where we really need to start to work together, where there's not going to be any world left uh, in a short or medium term. Uh, We can see it coming. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, Professor Chu, how do you perceive the potential risks of miscalculation and the possibility of crisis or conflict as highlighted by U.S. officials recently?
3: um uh, first of all i think uh, there definitely there are some the potential of the crisis uh, between Sino uh, the, the united states and especially i think uh, uh on the taiwan uh question and the chinese officials already mentioned many times taiwan uh, is the uh, the core of chinese core national uh, interest uh so the united states if support uh, the uh, if like the uh, the so-called free navigation or other uh, 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 threat uh, provocative actions supporting Taiwan, that definitely will may uh, create uh, the crisis. But I sometimes I, I'm curious, I'm a, a, a skeptic about the potential conflicts, directly military conflicts between uh, China and the United States. And uh, as we know, uh, in this region, and actually the Taiwan question is now uh, the United States call uh, national interest, or not even the national interest. Um, and as well, China also send our um, the benchmark about under what conditions there could be a, a conflicts, military conflicts, or a war, right? So the first is about the uh, Taiwan from the internal, the Taiwan independence. And the second, that is the outsider and intervene and support uh, Taiwan in de- uh, inter, uh, de- independence. So only under these two conditions, and uh, by now there could be a military conflict uh, between uh, 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 across the Taiwan street or maybe between China and the United States. And then if the United States just uh, keep their words and stick to one China policy, now support uh, the Taiwan independence. So I think uh, uh, the uh, the, com- the directly military conflicts between two countries um, now so high, but the mm-hmm. crisis maybe uh, uh, occur. So that is why we need um, management mechanism uh, to manage the crisis.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I I agree with you that maybe neither China nor the U.S. would want a war. But what measures do you think can be taken to prevent uh, miscalculations?
3: Um, so, first of all, definitely that is about the uh, communication uh, between two sides and especially uh, between the two military sides, right? So, the previous uh, panelists already talking about uh, the United States now that some obstacles and uh, now to remove uh, the General Lee uh, from the uh, list. But actually, I think maybe there are other ways. For example, China also put uh, the U.S., uh, <laughs> Uh, Defense Minister on uh, a sanction list, and then to both have the equal stature, and they may uh, meet with each other. So I think how to reduce the uh, miscalculation or the uh, misperception, and I think uh, the both sides need to uh, meet and communicate, and uh, also uh, to build uh, some trust. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. So so know um, actually during the recent Shangri La dialogue, um. General Lee also voiced criticism against the U.S. for escalating the arms race in Asia, and he warned against the establishment of NATO-like military alliance in the Asia-Pacific. What do you make of of those remarks? And, And if military conflicts were to arise in the region, do you believe that the U.S. allies in the area would be willing to participate in a war?
2: Well, that's a, a, a very loaded question, unfortunately. Hopefully we never have to find out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to agree with um, Professor Chubot's uh, last uh, statement that, that there's a lack of trust. Um, the U.S. does not uh, tr- believes that China is an evil actor uh, based on what I don't know. I think just challenging it for King of the Hill or in, in the perception of America, there's always this idea that if others had the power we have, they would do what we did to them. And this is kind of a guilty thought that, uh, you know, everyone's out for themselves. It's a zero-sum game. Um, in terms of, you know, you know this military thing, I, I, I was really struck by a quote uh, by Secretary Austin. He talk, He was talking about Ukraine, but he said, quote, how dangerous our world would become if big countries just invaded their peaceful neighbors with impunity, unquote. And I just couldn't help think about uh, the U.S. uh, actions over the years. Uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Syria, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Currently, the U.S. is funding through a nonprofit National Endowment for Democracy uh, regime change operations in 90 countries around the world. Um, This is not the mark of a country that is trying to create trust. It wants control. Uh, And that is the biggest uh, uh, impediment here uh, for anything going forward. Trust is built, but it can be destroyed in a second. And when I say trust is built, it takes years to build trust and actions, but it can be destroyed very, very quickly uh, by a few actions. And right now, the biggest issue with the U.S., and this is not just for China, is unreliability. If you go to the recent poll that was um, a recent study that was conducted by the European Center for um, um, CFR, They uh, throughout Europe, there is no sense that the U.S. can be relied on because, you know, what happens if you if you thought Obama was great? Well, then then comes Trump. He reverses everything. Then Biden comes. He doesn't reverse everything, but he says he's going to. You just don't know from administration to administration whether they're going to keep their word, whether they're going to honor, you know, uh, treaties, uh, things like this. I mean, how can you conduct diplomacy if you cannot Trust the other party to follow through, and clearly, the United States is not willing to do that. And until the U.S. realizes that it has to do that—that that it's part of the world, it's not the king of the world—it can't just make rules and break them because it's in their own, in the U.S. interest—that it has to, if it wants a, you know, society, a global society of uh, international order, rules-based, law-based then they have to participate. It's the same thing with UNCLOS. You know, the the U.S. is one of the only nations not to ratify the protection of children and the protection of women uh, UN uh, conventions. Uh, They don't endorse the ICC. Why? Because they've said, quite frankly, we do not bow to any other power. Uh, We are supreme. We will not be judged by any other power, regardless if it's the rest of the world. And this is the impediment, uh, I think. It's nothing about China. This is also involves other nations who are being bullied, pushed around, told that they can't do this and they must do that. Uh, It's part of a colonial era attitude, uh, which has to end if in fact the world is gonna go forward. Otherwise there will be conflict. And whether it's with China or Russia or other places in the world, um, you know, it's the attitude that counts here.
0: Yeah. And, and- could, could I follow up on sure. something
2: Einar said?
1: Sure.
0: Well, I think you have to take a long-term perspective here. And if you look at this from the early 1970s, America is increasingly uh, trying to get out of its uh, commitments from the Shanghai communique. And you can see it. Uh, with all the activities recently you can even see it in small things maybe it's not so small when us it used to refer to china as china uh now refers to it to it as people's republic of china so that kind of builds a distinction between uh, taiwan on the one hand and, and china on the other so uh, i think that that shows uh where this has always been moving for for the last 50 years and I want to come back to Einar's point about this European Council on Foreign Relations poll, uh, which was released a couple of days ago. And what was very interesting to me about it was we can see now that there's a huge gap between European leaders and Euro- European citizens, because when the people were asked, the citizens were asked uh, if they would support uh, the U.S. in a war uh, over Taiwan, Two-thirds said no. So what is going to be interesting in the years to come, because next year there's an election here in Europe uh, for the European Parliament, is are the leaders of the EU going to take note of what their citizens want and act like a democracy? Or are they going to be the lap child of the United States and continue down this road to war? This I'm going to be watching with interest.
1: Okay. So, uh, Professor Chu, uh, what's your thought on this? Do you think China should be worried about a NATO-like military alliance in the Asia-Pacific?
3: It, it, it is evident that uh, in the last uh, several years, the United States tried to uh, the its uh, alliance system uh, in uh, Asia-Pacific region or so-called Indo-Pacific region. But I think... Uh, the the background is different uh, uh, from uh, the period when the NATO was set up. So, and all these countries really cannot coordinate together because they have some of the common interests, but the, uh, the conflicts also uh, conflicts with a, a, each other. So, this is the first. Uh, I think the United States try to uh, make the multilateral. Uh, aligned system in this region. And for example, now uh, recently Japan and South Korea is currently because the new uh, new South Korea uh, president is currently uh, trying to uh, improve the relations with uh, Japan. But definitely, if you look at there is still the deep uh, frictions between Japan and South Korea, especially over the histor- uh, history uh, issue. And it's also partly on the uh, uh, the, the territory disputes. So I think this kind of the NATO-like mi- military, the United States try to push kind of uh, this NATO-like military alliance, but I think in the near future, there are a lot of problems uh, about uh, this alliance. And on the other hand, um, if, there, uh, if military uh, conflicts uh, uh, were to arise, and uh, I do not believe that uh, the U.S. allies in this area would be willing to uh, join uh, in a war because that's not their national interest because they, they joined the alliance with the United States. And I think they just try to uh, increase their deterrence capability and uh, try to avoid a directly military uh, war. With other countries, so I think if the, their uh, military conflicts occurred, and the other uh, the United States allies were not willing to join uh, the uh, the war.
1: Okay, so Ina, let's look at the economic front because during the G7 summit last month, Biden said the U.S. is not looking to decouple from China, but to de-risk and diversify its relationship with China. How do you think we should interpret this?
2: Well, it's it's a lot of nonsense. I mean, uh, de-risking just simply, you know, it's it's. I want to have my cake and eat it too. So, in essence, what they're saying is, and this was at the urging of the Europeans, uh, they said, look, we don't like this decoupling because we, you know, China is a very important market for us. Uh, We, uh, in both directions, and we cannot decouple from them. They have disastrous consequences for our already weakened economy. So, U.S. said, okay, we'll go along with it, but, you know, how do we define this de-risking? It means that they're going to select what they want, all right, U.S. and Europe, what they want to keep away from China, and then China has to trade with them on the things that they want. I mean, it's, it's nonsensical. I mean, this is... You know, it's juvenile. I don't know how else to put it that you get to dictate the terms to another sovereign country that used to work when these were colonial powers and they could, you know, move their gunboats around and just tell people you either agree to what we're doing or, we're, or we'll kill you or we'll take over your country. Um, those days have gone. Europe is not this powerhouse that it was, neither is the United States. It's still strong. It's, these are very wealthy countries, but look at their economic growth rates. They're anemic. Everywhere else in the ra- world is doing well, especially in ASEAN and China. So let's look at the, the basis of the economics. All right. Everybody, uh, the U.S. and Europe, says they're afraid about trade, okay? Well, both of them, although the amount of trade they do with China is is declining, have huge um, deficits with China. They need Chinese goods, especially intermediate goods. They need the markets, especially if, if they're exporting. But they say, well, you know, China's being aggressive, and right? we need to protect ourselves. It's it's <laughs> and possible, you're protecting yourself against your trade partner. you're you're trying to say that the seas are, not open or that somehow China would shut off uh, trade through the South China Seas or through the Taiwan Straits China's 60% of China's exports go through the Taiwan Straits and South China Seas if they cut it off they would be cutting off themselves it's a false premise that is continually repeated as if it's somehow fact China hasn't threatened anything. They haven't uh, prevented any ships from going anywhere. It's just a complete fallacy that the U.S. W- once again—it's the U.S. who has used gunboats, who has blockaded Cuba, other places, who's you know used military force to um, to interfere with civilian trade for their own terms. So once again, the U.S. is accusing China based on no basis of things that it has already done itself and is willing to do again. So this is why it's it's very hard to see how you're going to have forward movement with the current elites in Europe and America. Mm -hmm. And I agree completely with Harvey. Uh, There has to be an an alignment between the people that they're supposed to represent and their interests of the country as opposed to these kind of ideological post-World War II uh, colonial ideas uh, that they cling to.
1: Well, Harvey, as we know, China has welcomed a series of U.S. entrepreneurs, such as Tim Cook in March and Elon Musk last week. So how do you perceive um, engagements like these, and and how do you think they are reflecting the views of the business circle regarding China-U.S. rivalry, particularly the concept of de-risking?
0: Hmm. Well, I think, like Milton Friedman, uh, the famous economist, said, the business of business is business. And so I believe that these business people, men and women, who are coming to China, uh, know that China is such a huge market, and they want to uh, have a chance to compete in that market, uh, even under President Xi's dual circulation, Model. There's a lot of uh, potential for the Chinese market. So I think they want to have the access to the market that China talks about. So, in a way, too, they uh, remind me of what Joe Nin Lai proposed when he was China's first premier. And that was to have a parallel track to formal diplomacy. He called it people to people. uh, He called it folk diplomacy. Today we call it people to people diplomacy. So I think these business leaders are actually a parallel track now to the government to protect their uh, own interests and protecting their own interests doesn't mean following in lockstep to the U.S.'s position necessarily. It means uh, opening up uh, markets on a fair basis and in in multiple directions. So I think it shows two things. One, that they want business, and two, that they haven't been satisfied with the politicians' answer to these uh, situations, and so they're trying to uh, I wouldn't say cut their own deal, but uh, to uh, plow their own field and try uh, to keep these talks alive and to try to broaden the amount of trade and degree of trade, bilateral, uh, multilateral, uh, multi-directional.
1: Mm-hmm. okay. but but Harvey, how feasible is it for for these businesses, uh, business leaders to really navigate the geopolitical realities and resist the pressure to diversify their operations?
0: i think they have a lot of power Mm -hmm. uh uh, in washington they have a saying uh that money talks and bs walks okay so these guys have a lot of money and women they have a lot of money they have a lot of power a lot of economic power and i think that they make a difference and i think um, at worst case there's some interactivity between business and uh and uh the government so um, I told you what uh, before what Milton Friedman said, but another business leader in America during the Eisenhower administration uh, said, and he was the CEO of General Motors, he said two things. The widely quoted thing he said is uh, what's good for uh, GM is good for America. And the other thing he said is what's good for America is good for GM. So uh, there is this kind of relationship between the two. So I think the business leaders uh, can play a big, big part here. And they have the uh, they have the uh, access to the leaders, as Elon Musk clearly demonstrated, the leaders uh, in China, the top leaders in China. But they also have uh, their ties to the leaders in America. So I, I think they're a very potent force to try to solve some of these problems problems, and I hope they're successful.
1: Okay. So, uh, Professor Chu, do, do you agree with Harvey that these uh, business leaders are, are that powerful? And, and how do you think, uh, like Elon Musk's interaction with Chinese officials, how does that say about the evolving role of business leaders as potential diplomatic bridges?
3: Yes, definitely. Uh, the business person are uh, pretty important. And I think during Trump administration, uh, many uh, Western observers uh, told Chinese, uh, told us that is so loose. Uh, and uh, in the past, uh, when the uh, Sino US relations was in trouble, and the uh, business persons will come out and they will voice uh, for, uh, to improve the bilateral relations. But during Trump administration, the business person uh, disappeared, and then they will argue uh, that. Uh, in the uh, last, uh, de- especially in the last decade, uh, and uh, uh, the uh, U.S. business person uh, currently affected by the uh, by the political uh, situation. But uh, currently, so by now, this time, Elon Musk and other uh, United States business, business person uh, came to China. I think definitely that is uh, important. And I think recently there is a want uh, the Chinese uh, new uh, the new Chinese ambassador to the United States, Xie and uh, he said, uh, one of his job in the United States is to find out all the uh, persons who are uh, supporting uh, to improve the bilateral relations and to build uh, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, the foundation uh, uh, the friendly foundation of the bilateral. Uh, relations, so I think definitely uh, the business person uh, could play uh, a key role uh, in uh, improve the bilateral relations. But on the other hand, uh, and I think recently uh, American senior officials also said uh, the relations with China is about geopolitical, and uh, and uh, even when the business person. Their uh, the voice to uh, uh, stabilize and improve the bilateral relations and the United States uh, will have its own uh, strategic log- logic to implement their uh, foreign policy. So I think that is a balance. On some occasions, they could play a significant role on some occasions, and uh, the uh, the officials, the, po- the political circle will uh, play the role
1: mm-hmm. well, I know, as we know, over the past several decades, Economic ties have been considered the bedrock of China-US relations, with the belief that mutual benefits of trade contribute to stability and prevent conflicts, as Thomas Friedman famously noted, that no two countries with McDonald's restaurants would go to war. Uh, But considering the current geopolitical climate, do you think we can still rely on economic ties to sustain the foundation of China-US relations?
2: No. No. I, I, I don't. I, I wish I wish it was uh, the case, but I mean, uh, when Harvey was saying that what's good for GM is good for America, what's good for America is good for GM, I was thinking of the East India uh, East India Company, which uh, f- for years was a marauding uh, colonial group that basically pirates <laughs> went around uh, taking everything they could get their hands on, had private armies, etc. You could have said back then that what's good for the East India co- uh, Company is good for England and vice versa. Um, going forward, I think China's strong suit is not to be concentrating on the U.S. and Europe. Uh, these are markets that are con- continue to be less important, especially as they lose their wealth. They're not competitive. I mean, uh, just recently, they were talking about the price of chips, a chip, uh, computer chip, processed in uh, created in the US is going to cost 30% more than a computer chip not produced in China but a computer chip produced in Taiwan. So that gives you an idea that uh, you know the market is not going to respond well to this idea that somehow you should buy something that's 30% more uh, expensive simply because it's made in America. Uh, some companies might but they'll go out of business because their competitors won't. So Right, going forward, uh, I think China has to look at countries that want to trade with them. And, uh, you know, the Global South, Central Asia, um, these are countries that, you know, feel that, you know, the old order is not serving them. Uh, They need to... uh, you know, be independent, to sovereign nations and to establish trade routes. And it's not a question of coming on to the Chinese side. It's simply um, adhering to a world that is multipolar. Mm -hmm. And if you, you know, in order to do that, there has to be uh, some sort of mutual respect, a kind of Westphalian system where countries say, look, trade and development and the welfare of our people is more important than us arguing about the differences in our uh, political, legal, and ideological systems. Um, And if they can do that, then the world will do very well. And this is, in essence, what China has been proposing with its uh, three pillars of security, trade, and respect. Um, Those are the key elements going forward, and I think China should continue that, that it shouldn't play this game of reacting to the United States every time the U.S. pushes China's buttons. Instead, they should concentrate on economic development, not only internally, uh, but with those uh, countries that are willing to do it. And mm-hmm. ASEAN is a clear example of that. Um, uh, obviously, the, the this um, five-country Central Asian uh, group that met at the same time as the G7 was a very positive reminder of what can be done if you sit down at the table and you, you know, make it clearly: this is about trade, not about us imposing our values on you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you, Anna Tengen, Senior Fellow at Taihe Institute, Professor Chu Boj from China Foreign Affairs University, and Harvey Zodin, former Vice President of ABC TV Network and Senior Fellow of the Center for China and Globalization. Thank you all for joining us today. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.